One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, my lovely Betwixters. It is I, Kate Lister. You're here. I'm here. We're all here. But before we can go any further together, I think you know what's coming your way. Take a seat. Here is your fair dues warning. This is an adult podcast spoken by adults to other adults about adulty things in an adulty way, about a range of adult subjects, and you should be an adult too. And now if you hang around and you get offended, well, tough tits. I don't know what to tell you. Because, fair dues, we did warn you. Thank you for joining me here on the Cypriot shoreline in ancient Grecian times, betwixters. Lay down your beach towel and enjoy the view with me, why don't you? I'd say buy yourself an ice cream, but they haven't been invented yet, so maybe we can have some frozen olives. But what's that emerging from the water? No time for olives, it's Aphrodite. And as legend has it, she was created from sea foam by Cronus castrating his father Uranus and throwing his genitals into the water. That's quite an origin story, really. So it should be no surprise that Aphrodite will go on to become the ancient goddess of sex and war. But did you know that she started out as the god of seafaring? Not quite as charismatic, I think you'll agree, but we've all got to start somewhere. What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, dearie. to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, with me, Kate Lister. On today's episode, we are in fantastic company, Betwixters. There is, of course, Aphrodite, but we have her Roman equivalent, Venus, and a whole host of other powerful, beautiful goddesses. And joining us for a return visit is the one, the only, the absolute amazing Ronald Hutton, who's taken us back to ancient times to introduce us to these magnificent goddesses of sex and war. What were their origin stories? Why, unlike the Christian equivalent, were God so sexualized in the ancient world? And how was it their stories evolved so dramatically? Well, I am ready to find out if you are. 
Hello and welcome back again to Ronald Hutton who is joining me betwixt the sheets. I couldn't be more excited that he's here. How are you doing? How are you doing, Kate? Kate, where's your accent from? It's, it's distinctively <laughs> northern, but uh, I'm not going to put my foot in it by suggesting from which side of the Pennines you come. I'm born and raised in Cumbria and I've lived in Leeds since I was 18. So I'm a, a kind of a bit of a mix mash. Yeah, that's the blend. That's why I was confused. <laughs> I've got different twangs on different words. I never thought I had an accent until I started doing this podcast. And then I got people emailing me saying, oh, I really like your accent. And now I'm like, oh, okay. But we're not here to talk about accents, although I'd love to get you back to talk about accents. We're talking ancient goddesses of sex which is right up my street what brought you to this research and ancient sex goddesses they're not just sex goddesses this is the crucial thing yeah, we should say that it's specifically yes. ancient goddesses of sex and war or sex and violence or as i more coyly tend to put it love and war now, to a lot of modern people, uh, not least hippies, the idea that love and war should be associated seems very counterintuitive. But right across the ancient world, you find this set of goddesses all the way from Ireland and Scandinavia, right across to Iraq, who combine these two roles. And when you think about it a bit more, which I was forced to do, it actually makes a lot more sense because really what both passionate love and violence do is stir the blood. True. They're really about vital fluids. They're about blood and sweat and semen and the juices of love when you are revving yourself up to fight somebody or you're being revved up to make love with somebody then your heart's pounding your throat's tightening adrenaline is surfing through you mm. it's actually much the same sensation and in traditional warfare ancient warfare war is very much a one-to-one -one business as armies clash together, warriors pair up and fight each other. Yes. So it's a bit like pairing up for love, except it's pairing up for death. I'd never thought of it like that. Yeah, you put those things together and you see the association. So goddesses who are rapaciously, magnificently sexual and voracious in that respect are also goddesses who love a fight. <laughs> I'd never thought of battles before as being like that. But I've often thought that it it's, it's kind of mad that so much of our history has come down to battlefields, fighting, where it's just basically we'll get as many blokes as we can in a field and then we'll just hit each other and whoever's got the most left at the end wins. But I'd never thought of it as being that intimate, as in it's one-on-one -on -one people are dying. That's going to stay with me for a while, Ronald. I need to think about that one, about that being like oddly... Erotic. I'll tell you how I came by this insight, incidentally, yeah. uh, or how it came to me strongly. And that is that uh, as retribution for some of the stuff I've done, having written about some wars, particularly the English Civil War, I am patron of uh, a couple of big reenactment events or societies. And in the case of the Civil War, the Sealed Knot, the oldest and biggest reenactment society in Europe, which reenacts cavaliers and roundheads. 
And uh, having been made its vice president for life, it's, there's always a historian, a well-known one until me, who's the vice president. And I, I felt I, I needed, after some years, actually to go on the battlefield with the people with whom I was associated to see what it was like. And it was quite fun. The combats are quite real. You've got 17th century weapons. You try not to hurt each other at all. But if you can touch the torso of the person against whom you're pitted, then they're dead. And it's often quite a matter of skill. It's rather like boxing or fencing. And as the two armies close together, as you come closer and closer, what you're doing is selecting the person opposite whom you're going to fight. Mm. Uh, and, and it really is quite intimate. Yeah. Honestly, I'd never thought of that before, but that's absolutely true. And I've always thought of sex and death as being very intimately linked in our psyche because uh, like one can be the start of creation, the other one is the end of it. So they're sort of the two halves of the same coin. But that's fascinating. Sex and death are also both obliterating experiences, although the obliteration of sex, the little death is mild and transitory. That's right. So if you're coming from a Christian perspective, it can be very strange to think that there would be gods and goddesses of sex and death because, you know, you've just got the one big guy. And what peoples and cultures would have these kind of beliefs? Who are the sort of the major ones that you have researched? Well, most ancient European and Near Eastern cultures. Really? Yeah, they're all warlike. And uh, every human group has sex. True. So it's widespread, yeah. The Syrians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Sumerians, the ancient Egyptians initially, uh, the Romans, the Irish, the Scandinavians. There are probably more people out there, but their ancient deities are less well recorded. Are they always women? Do you get... Men who are gods of sex and, and love and death. No, you get lots of war gods. <laughs> and you you do have gods associated with sex and the sense of fertility, of making yeah. babies. But this combination of both in one is distinctively female. I love that. Tell me about the goddess, Is it, I'm going to pronounce this horribly, but is it Inanna? Yeah, she's the oldest and best recorded of them. And in many ways, she's the mother of a lot of the others in that she influences how people see them. Inanna is really old. She's Sumerian and they're one of the first civilizations in the world. They seem to have invented writing and they probably invented cities. So they're right there at the beginning of uh, civilized life. And Mm. Nana is one of their goddesses, um, by far the most colourful and striking. She is incredibly highly sexed. She has got an incredible temper. She is incredibly inquisitive, brave, reckless, rash, exploratory. And she really fulfils every female role except that of a mother or a loyal wife. Her sexual appetite's amazing. There's a Sumerian story about how a new city asks her to be its patroness. 
look after it? And she says, yes, on condition that all the uh, adult men line up and have sex with me one by one. Oh, well played, Anana. Wow. And uh, they do this. And when she's worked her way through them, she's preparing to start again. And they beg her to stop because she's worn them <laughs> out totally. And rather grudgingly, uh, she says, OK, the deal has been made. She remains the patroness of that city. Wow. More famously, on another occasion, she wants to go down to the underworld to see what's there. And overworld goddesses and gods do not go to the underworld. It's breaching a law of nature. But she wants to see what it's like and she goes down and gets stuck there, technically dead. And that, of course, throws the entire cosmos into chaos, having one of its main deities out of action. And she has to be rescued by this deal whereby her faithless husband replaces her in the underworld for a certain amount of the year. That sounds like the, um, the story of Hades and... Persephone, when, is that where they get the, the seasons from? Yeah, it's exactly the, the Middle Eastern equivalent. And in fact, the story of Inanna and her husband, Amuzi, who becomes Tammuz in Syria, who becomes Adonis in Greece, is probably the origins of the myth of Hades and Persephone. So was Inanna, was she associated with agriculture at all? Or was, was her remit strictly love and war and that was her thing? No, she's got a very wide remit. Ah. And she starts as uh, a barn goddess. She's a goddess of the agricultural storehouse. She's married to the god of the palm trees and the farmlands. Okay. And so it's a natural alliance. He grows the crops and she stores them and looks after them. Never forget that storing your food is incredibly vital and perilous. If rodents rust, damp disease get into your food stock, you're going to die. You've got nothing for the winter. That makes it, yeah, so a goddess is important. She's vital. And then later she extends to becoming a goddess of the rain that helps the crops grow. And then thunderstorms. And through thunderstorms of war and conflict. And with the association with the crops and growth, also sex, and fertilization wow. and then eventually the planet we call venus the morning and the evening star she rises in the morning and calls warriors to arms and she rises in the evening and calls lovers to each other's arms oh that's beautiful and because inanna is associated with this planet the romans copy the idea for her and associate it with their love and war goddess venus and, of course, we still call that planet Venus. Before we get on to Venus, I want to talk to you about her, but is, do we have visual iconography of Inanna surviving? Like, what, what did, Do we have any sense of what they thought she looked like, how they conceived of this goddess? Very little. The Sumerians weren't very big upon statue, statuesque carvings. Right. What they did do were, were baked clay seals, and you can't get a great deal of fine detail on those. The kind of classic Inanna is this rather stick insect looking lady in a robe. Later on, things get a bit more detailed. The, the famous relief in the British Museum called the Queen of the Night, showing a naked goddess uh, with clawed feet, lions, holding up symbols of majesty, is almost certainly Inanna. Although under the name she gets, 
when speakers of a different language take over Sumeria, which is Ishtar. Ishtar, yes. Yeah. Under that name, she becomes known right across uh, the Middle East. And there's a whole area of quite fraught historical research about whether women in ancient Babylon worshipped the goddesses by having sex, in the, by selling sex in the temples, so-called sacred prostitution. Herodotus reckoned that they did. And there's some evidence that women worshipped Ishtar by having sex. Um, but it's very contentious, isn't it? Because we just can't fill in the blanks enough to say whether that definitely happened or not. I totally agree. You've summed up so well, I don't actually have to add nothing. <laughs> I don't know if I want them to have been doing that, but it's had this huge legacy on sort of sex worker cultures to this very day about whether or not there was ever such a thing as sacred prostitution, whether or not it was used in service of the gods, or whether people were just picking up clients around the temple. They just don't know. We actually don't know. No. Uh, the evidence is really very bad. Mm. Here I'm persuaded by a charismatic uh, American scholar, Stephanie Buden, who's written quite a lot about this. Yeah. And her arguments have convinced me. I don't have original ideas here. <laughs> Stephanie is the one who's rooted out the text. It's very, very fraught, that particular area. But one that's not is the legacy of Inanna in other gods and goddesses that we know, that are more well-known. So we touched briefly on Venus there. Is Venus a goddess of war as well? I'd only ever thought of her as a goddess of love. She's certainly a goddess of war. Ah. Uh, the Romans give her different titles and aspects. And as Venus Victrix, she's definitely a war goddess. She was the patron goddess of Julius Caesar. When the Roman legions jackbooted their way onto Britain, they were shouting her name as their war cry. She was particularly the patroness of the second legion, the Augusta, which ended up wow. stationed at Caer Leon on the border of what's now Wales. So she's quite definitely a war goddess. She isn't originally. She starts as a cabbage patch goddess. <laughs> Sorry, that sounds really funny. She's the goddess of the market garden, or rather she's the spirit of the market garden. She doesn't have a sex originally, uh, which is why this most rampantly feminine of Roman goddesses has a name which is a neutral noun, not a feminine one. And it's a really important job because growing your vegetables gives you your greens, it yeah. keeps you healthy. So the vegetable plot is vital, but also flowers. They're also grown in cultivated gardens like vegetables. So not just cabbages, but runner beans and uh, all, all the other things of Venus's produce. When the Romans expand, they run into the Etruscans, a people to the north, and they conquer them. And the Etruscans have a pretty young female goddess called Turin, who's goddess of flowers. And she gets merged with Venus because Venus looks after flowers as well as veg. And so Venus now becomes young and pretty and definitely female. And that and her connection with flowers really makes her the obvious contender. When the Romans conquer south, take in the Greek cities of southern Italy and need to twin somebody with Aphrodite, the Greek love goddess. And Aphrodite loves roses as her favourite flowers, and so does Venus. So Venus now takes over Aphrodite's mythology and her iconography. The myths about Aphrodite simply get retold by the Romans. 
Venus's name substituted, and the statues of Aphrodite simply get copied and given Venus's name. But she's not yet a war goddess. Aphrodite was in a few places in Greece, but not very widely. So it's when the Romans get to Syria and conquer there that they run into Ishtar, alias Inanna, our old friend. Right. And now uh, Venus becomes a war goddess as well and associated with the morning and the evening star, the planet. Wow. And so in many ways, Venus is the lost and greatest of Inanna's daughters. I'll be back with Ronald and sex goddesses after this short break. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. seem to have started their early career as goddesses in sort of agriculture and storing things and plants is that do you see that elsewhere that that goddesses who started being who started as associations with growing food and storing food go on to become goddesses of love and war not quite that precise it's more that deities start with rather mundane functions okay and rather simple functions and then they acquire much more human-like characteristics and personalities mm. and complex roles. If we look at Aphrodite, I don't think Aphrodite starts with any relation to agricultural vegetation. Right. Okay. I think she's a rock chick. <laughs> In other words, she's associated with the mineral-bearing rocks, which make Cyprus famous and rich, ah. copper. And indeed... Aphrodite's original icon at her original great temple at Paphos in Cyprus is a shapeless hunk of rock. It wasn't destroyed 
at the Christian takeover because it didn't look like a, a human, didn't look like an idol, and it's still there. It's, of course, a good reason why traditionally she's married to the rather unattractive lame smith god, Hephaestus. I'd always wondered that. Because she produces the metal and he then forges it. I'd always thought he was punching above his weight, and now that makes more sense. Yeah, just like Inanna and Demuzi are a perfect pairing of productivity and processing. Wow. So are Aphrodite and Hephaestus, but this time with minerals. What about the figure of Lilith? I might be misremembering, but does Lilith have associations with Ishtar or have I just jumbled things up in my recollection? She has absolutely no associations with Ishtar right. other than the Burney relief, that figure in the British Museum, which for many years was thought to be Lilith. And we've now rejected that idea completely. She's, she's got the wrong headdress, basically. Right, OK. She's got lots of horns on her hat, and that means a mega-goddess. Lilith is a demoness. Uh, originally, she's the cot-deaf demoness, a figure found across the ancient world to explain the heartbreakingly high rate of infant mortality oh. in traditional societies with poor obstetrics, poorer nutrition, and poor sanitation. About half of all children die before the age of five. And a lot of them just die overnight, mysteriously. And this is blamed right across the ancient world on a night-flying, child-hating demoness. And the Mesopotamian version of that is Lilithu, who's known as Lilith in Hebrew. The Hebrews, or to be more exact, the Jewish people in the Middle Ages, developed this child-killing demoness into a much more charismatic figure by making her the first wife of Adam who's rebellious and disobedient and all the things that feminists would, would like feisty women to be, quite understandably, and who is then banished by an angry Jehovah and goes off to kill children. So Lilith gradually evolves into something approaching a feminist icon, whereas she begins as a, a very harsh and horrid medical reality. Could you tell me a bit about the Irish goddess of sex and love and death that you alluded to very briefly there because I'm fascinated by the evidence that we've got for Celtic deities. Yeah, she's the Morrigan, the Queen of Phantoms. Ooh, that's a title. Yeah, yeah, it's the most likely current translation of her name. And she combines the two roles perfectly. She loves war and she incites it and she's one of the trio or quartet or quintet of Irish goddesses who do that. But out of all the others, she's the only one who also bestows a victory upon gods and heroes by having sex with them or offering sex to them. She seduces the Dachta, the great god, and enables his family of gods to take over Ireland. She gives them victory after he's had wonderful sex with her by the bank of a river. And she offers the same thing to Cúchulain, the most famous hero of Northern Ireland, of the Ulster people. He turns her down, and she then tries to take vengeance on him, and uh, he beats her off. He actually injures her three times oh, right, uh, okay. when she's trying to take him out. Wow. And he then is tricked by her into healing her magically. This, incidentally, is not 
probably a Christian spin on it, as it might appear, because we only have this legend in a Christian era form. Mm. Because you get a very similar thing uh, right back at the beginning in Sumeria, where the first great hero whose name is known to the world, Gilgamesh, is propositioned royally by uh, Ishtar, alias Inanna, who offers him the Sumerian equivalent of a Porsche Turbo, which is uh, a mega chariot drawn by winged demons and terrific prosperity and success as a king, providing that he becomes her lover or husband. And he actually repels her. He informs her that she treats men like dirt. She's got this long list of disposed of lovers and he has no wish to become the next on the list. And she throws a tantrum. She goes to her father, the king of the gods, and says, I want to nuke this guy by letting this monster loose on the earth. And daddy says, won't that create havoc? And she says, yeah, I like havoc. Wow. And she lets loose the monster, and Gilgamesh actually kills it and thwarts her again. But his best buddy dies as a result, so he loses the great love of his life, who's actually a guy. She is a demanding lady, isn't she? Yeah. Wow. And I've just remembered there's a story in the Epic of Gilgamesh with the the wild man, Inkadu, who is civilised by having sex with Gilgamesh's favourite courtesan, Shamhat. So it seems like good sex could work magic in the ancient world. Yeah, there's quite an impressive ancient Near Eastern tradition. A, that sex is a good thing, and B, that women are very good at it. Mm. Long before Masters and Johnson, the (laughs) Sumerians, Babylonians, Assyrians recognised the sheer power of the female libido. Mm. And this is, of course, projected onto goddesses. Cause. So how does this square with something like Christianity? Because obviously nothing exists in a vacuum. They all feed into one another. And then we get this religion where one of the central iconographies is the Virgin Mary, that we've moved very far away from, if you don't have sex with me, I'm going to get my dad to blow you up. And now we're, we're not having sex at all. Women do not have sex at all. Or is it more complicated than that? It's not, it's not a lot more complicated than that. Christianity is an immensely powerful religion in its message. It's a winning combination. It's the classic missionary world religion. Mm. And encouraged in turn, another one, Islam, which shares the same characteristics, drawing on uh, really a very unusual tribal god, and that's the god of the Hebrews. Jehovah is pretty well the only ancient god who doesn't have sex. He really is amazingly unusual Mm. in that respect. And there is a Puritanism in ancient Judaism which feeds through into Christianity. And in early Christianity, celibacy, virginity, was regarded as the best sexual state. Mm. There are plenty of ancient pagans around who have that opinion, but they're a minority. And it's not a dogma, it's a personal preference. Are there still cultures and people that have gods and goddesses of sex and death that are worshipped today? Hindus. Aha, of course. How could I forget them? That was silly. We're going to Kali, aren't we? We we are, yes. (laughs) Kali Durga, drinker of blood. She's another in the same mould, but uh, rather unhelpfully and with huge admiration and respect for Oriental cultures. I'm drawing my boundary at the frontier between Iraq and Iran Mm. just because it's too big a job 
for me to go further and familiarize myself with languages and traditions which are completely new to me and texts which I don't know from the inside. Absolutely. Can I ask you a final question on this one? And and this this might be a silly question, but do you have a favourite ancient goddess? Like the one that you're just drawn to more than anything? Not necessarily one with sex and... It can be the goddess of cabbages. I really like the sound of that. But who would you choose? Venus. Ah. I'm not sure why, actually. Just always been an attraction. It's not logical because somebody with my lifestyle and my profession ought to go for more austere intellectual goddesses <laughs> of learning, like Athene, Minerva, Bridget. But uh, somehow Venus won my heart. It, it could just be that I read the Aeneid, the great ancient mm. Roman poem, at about the age of eight. And Venus was just so impressive and so cute. She appears there as the ideal mother figure. She does, doesn't she? At the age of eight, a child turns more to a mother figure than a schoolmistress figure. True. That must have been quite a shock for you when you started doing research and you realised that she had other hats to be wearing, that she was that she was a goddess of love and sex as well. Oh, I loved that. So she just became ever more interesting and complex. And therefore, I honour goddess in, in my mind, uh, you know, my sentiments. I have uh, a natural attraction to Venus-like goddesses in other cultures. So when I'm in Ireland, I think of the Morrigan as the most obvious of the pantheon there. When in Scandinavia and Germany, of Freya, mm. who is the northern equivalent. And when in the Middle East, of uh, Ishtar or Inanna. I love the sound of Inanna. She sounds like a girl that you would go for a drink with. Ronald, you have been incredible to talk to today. And if people want to know more about you and your work, where can they find you? They find me every day. I have a post bag of about 50 letters every morning through which to try and work. Uh, I'm a sitting duck. I'm at the University of Bristol, England. People can find me there. But I, I don't really need to be found. I'll, I'll, I'll find everybody else yeah. just by keeping yeah. on writing. Don't go looking for Ronald. He'll come and find you. It will be fine. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me today. You've been wonderful. It's been lovely talking to you, Kate. Thank you for listening and thank you so much to Ronald for joining me. And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, review and follow along wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like us to explore a subject or perhaps you just wanted to say hello, you can email us at betwixt at historyhit.com. We have got episodes on everything from Napoleon's sex life to the affairs of JFK all coming your way. This podcast was edited by Tom DeLaghi and produced by Stuart Beckworth. The senior producer was Charlotte Long. Join me again Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast contains music from Epidemic Sound. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.